This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The Marvel Universe's first Muslim superhero to have her own comic book and TV series was brought to the screen by our guest Bishake Ali. The miniseries, Ms. Marvel, stars Iman Vellani as the teenage Kamala Khan who discovers she has superpowers. It concluded last Wednesday on Disney+, Plus, but all the episodes are streaming. Bishake Ali spoke with Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger, who will tell you more. Kamala Khan is a teenage girl living in Jersey City, juggling the sometimes conflicting demands of high school, social life, and her family. Her Pakistani-born parents, especially her mom, Muniba, are worried that she's growing up too quickly. Kamala is an artist, a daydreamer, and a fan of superheroes. She's especially enamored of Captain Marvel. She even goes to a convention dressed as Captain Marvel, where she discovers she herself has superpowers. How she gets those superpowers is too much to explain here, but they are part of her family history, a history fractured by the traumatic creation of Pakistan during partition in 1947. Bisha Kaeli is the head writer of Ms. Marvel. She's from England, but her parents, like Kamala Khan's, came from Pakistan. Before Ms. Marvel, she wrote for another Marvel show, Loki, as well as for Mindy Kaling's TV miniseries, which was a reboot of Four Weddings and a Funeral, and the Netflix show Sex Education. Ali's also worked as a stand-up comedian and often co-hosted the comedic podcast The Guilty Feminist. Let's start with a clip from Miss Marvel's first episode. Here, Kamala's talking with her friend Bruno, played by Matt Lintz. Her parents don't want her to go to AvengerCon, the convention I mentioned above. She's not doing well in school, and she's feeling pretty down. Yeah, maybe they're right. Maybe I spend too much time with fan art and costumes and with my head stuck in fantasy land, so. Who's they? My mom, my teachers, Mr. Wilson, everyone. You know, there was a girl in our neighborhood who decided she wanted to go backpacking around Europe and you would, you would literally think she's joined a death cult given the way all the aunties just gossip about her. I'm lost. What does that have to do with AvengerCon? He's dressing up as Captain Marvel's weird. No, it's not. And it's childish, and I know that, okay? And, and let's be honest, it's not really the brown girls from Jersey City who save the world. Sure they do. You're Kamala Khan. You want to save the world, then you're going to save the world. And that's a scene from Ms. Marvel. Our guest today is the head writer of the show, Bisha K. Ali. Bisha, welcome to Fresh Air. Thank you so much for having me. If we're going to put aside the superhero stuff for a second, the show seems to really be about a, a teenage girl trying to find, as you say, like find her place in the world. Were you at all concerned that, okay, we don't want to make this about she's rejecting like the cultural tradition she comes from, but that there's a balance there between accepting like her high school friends, but also but and accepting what her parents want. A hundred percent. She's fully engaged in her community. She's mm-hmm. fully engaged in going to uh, the dance practices and going to doing a big dance at her brother's very very South Asian, specifically Pakistani wedding. Mm-hmm. Um, you see her fully engaged in going to the mosque and taking part in a religious prayer there and being part of that community. Going to those Eid celebrations. So there's no there's no note of these people, this culture oppresses me and I'm in direct conflict with them. We're never, ever driven by the idea that I want to reject all of this. No, she loves all of this. She wants to, she wants to be part of saving all of this. And that was really important to us. One of the funny lines that, that sums up her parents' attitude, her dad says, 
we trust you. We just don't trust anyone else. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And I think what's really been a joy is hearing a lot of um, people from Pakistani backgrounds, and I think a lot of second generation backgrounds uh, generally responding, being like, yep, I've had this word for word dialogue with my parents. <laughs> it's like you've been, you're inside my teenage um, living room. And that response of it's not that we don't trust you, it's that we don't trust everybody else is in the moment, there's a lot of levity there. But also that speaks to the immigrant experience too, is that mm. we don't know how to trust anybody else. We we haven't been fully accepted into this place. There is There are points of division that maybe I don't even have the eloquence to explain what they are, but I don't feel like it's safe for you in this world because of this journey that we've made. Um, and so there's so much on both sides of even a comment like that um, that speaks to exactly where her parents have come from, what their journey has been, and influences how they then want to protect their children too. I mean, the scenes with their family are just wonderful to watch. Um, and and what I really like about the show is that the superpowers are really just like another thing she has to deal with. Like she's she's got school, mm-hmm. she's got her family, she's trying to let her drive. Maybe there's some romantic issues coming. And then she's also got this like cosmic energy that shoots from her hands. Like it's uh-huh. just another thing. And at one point she's in school. She's not really in control of her powers at this point. And she, at the end of the class, like um, – like her powers show up on her nose. It's almost like a big zit appears on her nose. And <laughs> yeah. she rushes to the bathroom trying to get it together because she's hiding this. And her friend misunderstands what's going on and, and hands her a tampon like over the stall. Like that's that's a really funny scene. It's, it uses those powers as a metaphor for like all the complications of, of growing up in adulthood. That's exactly it. It was really important. That's something that existed in the comics um, in a big way that felt really important to me and why I was so drawn to the material anyway, um, was that her powers and what happens to her and the the superhero element of this really reflects on where where she is psychologically, where she is in her maturity, where she is as a teenager. And what's the worst case scenario in all of the scenarios and it's being as you say it's having a zit on your face and it's but there's a big cosmic zit your nose is expanded it's looking very cosmic so um that was incredibly important to us that these are so specific teen problems that this girl is having um and i think that's the the glory of us being allowed to make a tv show in 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 the context of this wider huge storytelling web of the marvel cinematic universe when you were writing the show, did you have an ideal viewer in mind in your head? Oh, gosh. Um, certainly at the beginning, we wanted to capture a broad audience. Um, but we also, on a very personal level, we're writing for people like us. We're writing for people who rarely get to see themselves be the protagonists, who re- who have suffered from a history of poor poor uh, media representation in the West for decades. So yes, there was a kind of a general broader audience, um, but there's also a very specific niche audience too that we're speaking to. And that there are some elements in this show where if you don't know, you just don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's us speaking to them. And it's really a love letter to all of those people, to fans and to young women especially. Um, but there's also a certain subsection within that that's there's stuff there that people from a Muslim background are really going to pick up on. There's stuff there that people from a South Asian background will really pick up on. And then even more granular, specifically a Pakistani background will pick up on, and even more granular than that, specifically a Sindhi Pakistani family. So that was our intention, to speak to everybody, but also have kind of coded love letters to all different types of groups within that. Yeah, that's exactly how I felt. Like, I really enjoyed watching your show, but sometimes I felt like how I feel when I'm driving my almost teen daughter and her friends to soccer (laughs) practice, where like, 
not catching all the references. They're talking too quickly for me. I don't know the music. They're not necessarily talking to me, but I just really loved the experience. Like I wouldn't give up driving to soccer practice or anything. And I felt the same way about the show. I think that's that's great. Yeah, I think the other thing is it should speak to parents as well Mm -hmm. um, in terms of those relationships. And I think, yes, we're speaking to teenagers, but I think suddenly parents kind of have sat up a little bit at that point and said, yes, I'm not just a parent. I'm also a child of, like, a long, I'm a long, I'm a long I had my rebellious period too, and yeah. Um, So as you said, there's, like, these layers of jokes. There's inside jokes, uh, cultural jokes for people who are Muslim, for people, families from South Asia. And there's a funny scene I would like to walk through with you a little bit, hopefully without killing the jokes. Um, <laughs> there's a, episode two, there's an Eid festival at the, I think it's a parking lot outside the mosque. And mm-hmm. Kamal and her friend, Naki, are explaining the clicks at the mosque. And the camera's like sprinting through the festival showing these clicks. Um, we won't go through all of them, but there was a couple I just wanted to ask you about. The, the first two are the mosque bros who are wearing like mostly Western clothes and they're standing in front of a sports car, like twirling basketballs. And There's then the- always a group of them with sports cars. I'm like, guys, where'd you, <laughs> where are you getting these money for these cars from? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And then you compare them to the pious boys who were wearing like caftans and like are handing out free, free Qurans. And you say that like the mosque bros don't respect the halal gap, but the Pious boys are all about the halal gap. So can you explain what the halal gap is? Um, The halal gap is uh, kind of a colloquialism amongst younger people um, where it's just sort of a respectful distance, like uh, just a physical space that isn't too in your space Mm -hmm. between um, people who might be attracted to each other. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the mosque bros, they don't know how to respect the halal gap. They don't know how to give you a space. You're kind of invading your personal space, essentially. Um, And halal being kind of uh, uh, wholly unacceptable under God. <laughs> and then the um, the halal gap with the pious boys, um, they are nothing but the halal gap, i.e. they'll stand two meters away from you so that they make sure they're respecting the halal gap to the extent where you have to shout to communicate with each other. So it's a little play on that. And the, the, the thing, what's fun about it is, if you know what the halal gap is, um, it's funny. And if, if you don't, hopefully you can understand you by can the difference it, between right. these two groups of boys <laughs> that we've just seen. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the mini harami girls. Who are they? Yes. Um, mini harami girls, like, they're just up to slightly naughty stuff. Just, just slightly naughty things. So they're just you know, misbehaving they're not, kids. Essentially. And they're not so, they're not so, harami means, like, it's kind of not good under God. I'm doing a very, very basic definition there. <laughs> um, but the, the mini harami girls are just kind of doing tiny little sins here and there. Nothing that we'd get in too much trouble for. Um, but just kind of their energy in that scene is... Um, adorable and I, we, in our heads in the rise room we were just saying as we were breaking, doing this breakdown which is very much a homage to Mean Girls um, we we're looking at how the their behaviour isn't kind of they're not going to get in trouble for it but we all know that they're the mini Harami girls and they're on, on track for more Haram things if they're not careful gotcha. well I think what's interesting is, is earlier you said there's all these layers of inside jokes for people who've grown up South Asian or Muslim in, in different communities and so those are inside jokes and that, but then sometimes you take the time to explain something to a larger audience, which I think sounds like one of those moments where you're thinking deeply about how will this be understood by other people. And I thought an interesting scene of that is between uh, Kamala and Nakia in the bathroom when they're talking about why Nakia wears a headscarf. So I, I just wanted to play this scene because I thought it was interesting that we could talk about it afterwards. Um, and Nakia is played by Yasmin Fletcher. So let's hear it. Everything's just changing really fast, Max. 
You feel like you can't keep up? I know it's dumb, but... Are you kidding? Between the hijab and the girlies, my parents can barely make eye contact with me anymore. How are you making it look so easy? Easy? It's definitely not easy. My whole life, I've either been too white for some people or too ethnic for others. And it's been this very uncomfortable, sucky in between. So when I first put this on, I was hoping to shut some people up, but I kind of realized I don't really need to prove anything to anybody. Like when I put this on, I feel like me, like I have a purpose. It's probably why I ran for the mosque board. And remember, you're the one who convinced me to do it in the first place. I love you. I love you too. So, Bisha, that that seems like a scene that's doing some work. <laughs> yeah, it is indeed. It's doing push-ups. Um, <laughs> yes, absolutely. I think when we see characters with a hijab, historically, it's usually portrayed as a tool of oppression, right? And that it's not someone's choice or that it's something that narratively at some point they're going to take off their hijab and now they've self-actualized and now I know how to assimilate and I can be free and live my own life. And I'm... You imagine I actually, like wind I, blowing through someone's hair or something like that. <laughs> Precisely, yeah. Um, and look, I've said that quite flippantly and for effect in this interview, but in reality, there is a narrative like that that exists for someone out there. That's, I don't want to diminish that, actually. That's somebody's truth and, you know, good luck to them. But it is the dominant um, narrative that we've seen when it comes to hijab. And I think it would that being the sole, I'm, when we talk about representation, I think I'm very mindful that one thing can't represent every single billion plus Muslim experience, mm-hmm. not at all. We can represent one story that's true to the characters in our show, and that has to be more than enough. And this, for us, what felt really important was that this was a choice for her. She feels empowered by putting it on. There's something that her parents actively, in fact, were confused by her doing. And this is something that she really felt like, this makes me who I am, and I want this for myself. For young girls who have chosen for themselves to wear hijab, for them to see someone like them, so they don't have to go and explain themselves at school all the time or where their friends or their peers are like, why, why, what's up with this? Who's forcing you to do it? This is just one example where they can kind of see themselves in Nakia, that Mm-hmm. Yes, that's how I feel about it. And that felt so important to us. And there's been such a positive response to um, set women who wear hijab feeling like that when they saw that scene. So that was always the intention. And yes, it was doing a lot of work, but um, hopefully it pays off. She's got gains. So Bishop, looming in the background of the show is partition. Uh, when British colonial rule of India ended in 1947 and the independent self-governing countries of India and Pakistan were created... Um, there are estimates that partition displaced 15 million people, and I've seen estimates that up to 2 million people died in, in violent conflicts. Um, one of your characters says that every Pakistan family has a partition story, and your characters have a traumatic one. I was, I was wondering if you can talk a little bit about how you decided to make partition central to the story. Absolutely. Um, partition had such a huge impact those numbers you just stated are so high and it's something that we don't really talk about. We don't really talk about it even in our own homes that much, in the homes of the people who are directly affected by it. And when I think about 
my experience with that, my own family's experience with what happened during partition, I think about stories that are snippets of things. And often those snippets of stories are coming to you in times of, at times of bereavement, when someone passes away, suddenly there's like an opening, this door just starts getting cracked open. And the trauma of what happened, you're starting to hear pieces of it. If I'm kind of being really honest about this process, it was certainly the journey for a lot of us in the room in terms of bearing witness to what people we know and love have been through and what that means on a wider scale when we put that out into the world. Well, I think what you said about how these kind of stories come in snippets, like a, a door opens and then it closes, I think that a, a lot of immigrants leave countries because of something terrible they're leaving behind mm-hmm. and then they make they have to make decisions about what to remember and what to honor about those experiences and what, what to forget. And then you, your characters are doing that very much um, Kamala's mother doesn't want to really talk about things, um, her father maybe a little bit more. Could you talk about that process? Um, yes, absolutely. So this idea of people wanting to share information, not wanting to share information, um, is wrapped up in so much. Sometimes it's, I don't have the information, or sometimes it's, I don't have the information, but the story that I do have is um, so damaging to me or so negatively affected my life that I want to put it away and I don't want to talk about it. I don't want us to touch it at all. And I do think that's connected some, to some degree to a more generalized immigrant experience, as you say, um, simply because, well, I moved to get away from this thing. This thing is so hard and I don't know how to do the hard work of making a new life here while also addressing whatever came before. And I brought you here to not have to talk about it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's something that is has been quite relatable to a lot of people. After the show came out, people who've watched this with their own families, and I think the thing that was really impactful for us as the writers kind of sending each other messages back and forth was sharing these stories that people were posting online of, I never talked about this with my parents or they only mentioned this small snippet before. And we watched this show together and we were able to open up that door. Mm. And that was really impactful for all of us because like, that's what we were kind of crying to ourselves in our WhatsApp group. Mm. Um, and that was really so gratifying to see that impact. Um, but very specifically, say, for example, for me, even after the show came out, my mum texted me and was like, did I ever tell you this? And told me more stories from my own family. This might be too personal to share, but is there anything about your your family story that you'd be willing to tell us? There's one that stuck out to me that I knew from beforehand, and that was my mother's grandmother, and that during partition, um, one thing that happened was, I mean, we don't depict this on the television show because it, partition was far more violent than I had the capacity to depict mm-hmm. and far more complex. So that's why we focus so much on an individual family story. But one of the elements that we kind of are um, tipping our hat towards is the fact that um, children would often be lost completely. Um, their parents were murdered right beside them or they um, simply got lost in the crush of people trying to leave at real time because, as you said, millions of people moving and it was such a short period of time. It was very, very, like a, less than a month when this actual tra- movement was taking place, the majority of it. So um, the children getting lost from their families was uh, something we were really thinking about a lot in the writing of it. And part of it for me personally was that my mother's grandmother had um, been handed these six children and said that they're we can't find their parents, they've lost their parents entirely, they've come off the train, and some of them have come off a train where their parents are dead on those trains, and the Mm. kids have survived because of the actions of their parents, Mm. and then the children are here. And she ended up raising six of those children who Mm. had no sense of who they were before, 
they don't know anything about their history before that date, before getting off those trains. They're traumatized by what they've just experienced. Um, and so that was a story that always stuck with me, that there were these, this a family of six children who, were, who I don't know, I haven't kind of, I'm not connected them in a deep way, but my great-grandmother just raised them because they were handed over to her. And thought, what a responsibility for her to feel that someone needs to care for these children. What a moment for these children that have all lost any semblance of what a family is before that moment. We're listening to the interview Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger recorded with Bisha K. Ali, head writer for the Disney Plus series Ms. Marvel. The miniseries has concluded, but all the episodes are streaming. We'll hear more of the interview after a break. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to the interview Fresh Air producer Sam Brigger recorded with Bisha K. Ali, head writer for the Disney Plus miniseries Ms. Marvel, which ended last week but continues to stream. Ms. Marvel stars Aman Vellani as Kamala Khan, a Muslim teenage girl living with her Pakistani immigrant parents in Jersey City and dealing with the things teens have to deal with, but also learning that she has superpowers and has to fight off supervillains and governmental law enforcement agencies. Before Ms. Marvel, Ali wrote for another Marvel Comics-related show, Loki, and Mindy Kaling's TV reboot of Four Weddings and a Funeral. She's also a stand-up comedian. Bishop, Ms. Marvel's gotten a lot of positive reviews from critics, and there seems to be a lot of fans of the show. However, that's been somewhat uh, blemished by people review-bombing the show. Can you explain what review-bombing is? Um, I've, I can't explain what review bombing is. I think, well, can I? I don't know. I don't know what motivates it. Um, essentially... Um, well, just the act th- itself. I think the act... Um, now I'm sort of... What's the Urban Dictionary definition of review bombing? Um, sort of uh, piling on negative reviews on online outlets without any kind of uh, filters or stop gaps or checks that these are legitimate reviews and piling on in, in the thousands on just one-star reviews, whether people have watched it or not. Um, I think that's the, I think it's kind of a malicious negative reviews, mm-hmm. um, not based on necessarily having watched it. I, I mean, if they did watch it and then gave it one star, you know, that's their prerogative. But uh, it they seem to happen like, like right immediately yeah. when a show is released. So it, it Absolutely, seems, yeah. seems unlikely that people have actually watched the show. Thank you for your reassurance. <laughs> I appreciate you. Yeah. So, so this. I would push back on the on the phrasing. However, I don't know that the the critical reviews and the critical response and the people who have had a really, in some cases, profound connection with what the show has done. I don't think those are blemished by the fact that the review bombs exist. Okay, fair I think enough. I'll, I'll accept re- that. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, th- this sort of thing seems to happen to shows in the like science fiction comic book genre that uh, feature actors of color, especially if they're playing roles that in the past were played by white actors, or sometimes if women take on roles that were once played by men. When I was doing research about you, like I very quickly found negative YouTube videos about how you were mm-hmm. this, quote, radical feminist that was going to ruin <laughs> this comic book or stuff like that. And I think what's really funny, the bit that makes me laugh is saying that I'm um, anti-capitalist, radical feminist. And I was like, imagine what kind of anti-capitalist I must be if I was working for, <laughs> for Disney. For Disney, yeah. <laughs> and that really makes me laugh. I don't You're know why. tearing things down working for Disney. Yeah, really sticking it to the man at one of the oldest and biggest corporations that there is. <laughs> yeah. So you grew up in a suburb of London called Hounslow. Can you describe what it's like there? Um, partially grew up in Hounslow. Mm-hmm. 
So there was a, quite a large South Asian community there, both mm. Pakistani community and um, an Indian community too. But I went to school in Twickenham, which wasn't too far away, mm-hmm. um, which was not as ethnically diverse at all. Um, and I would say relatively so still to this day. But um, certainly Hounslow, I was seeing people like me all over the place, and which was lovely. I also kind of grew up between Hounslow in London and also we sort of spent our um, summers in the UK and then the school year, my father ended up working in Saudi Arabia, teaching at a university. So we spent a lot of time there. So my schooling was actually, a lot of it was in Saudi Arabia. And then in winter, we were kind of staying with my father's family in Pakistan. So I really grew up between three countries mm-hmm. until about the age of 12, 13. Um, and then we fully settled in Hounslow. So it was quite a disjointed way to be in the world. What was your family like? Did they both work? or? Yes, my mother was a teacher, so she taught... Um, reception age I think that you might call that kindergarten Mm -hmm. um and my father uh, trained as a doctor and then with his qualification from Pakistan in the UK at the time that he immigrated he wasn't able to they were not allowed to practice and so that was incredibly frustrating for him of course and that's how he ended up um in Saudi Arabia that he ended up lecturing at a university there Mm -hmm. in epidemiology so he's been thrilled to be putting those skills to use in the past three years. Um, so he was his specialty was epi- uh, public health or epidemiology. What was it like for you to be moving from England to Saudi Arabia every year? Like the, that must have been sort of cultural whiplash. Yes, uh, very much moving between these three countries, England, Saudi Arabia and Pakistan, um, was a constant whiplash. And I think what it, I can looking, looking back at it now, I can see what the impact was in some ways. And at the time, I think I felt so disconnected from every group that I was entering into because I was witnessing different ways of life everywhere. And I was doing kind of judgment free I, because I was so used to this movement between the three of them. Um, and yet they didn't speak they didn't make sense altogether. The three different places, children living in completely different lifestyles, different socioeconomic um, profiles as well is what I was a big part of in these different places where I I was so confused by that. I couldn't understand how I was supposed to, as a child, from child brain, um, there was so much, there was some poverty that I'd witnessed and been really close to um, and a kind of a way of life that kind of was so jarring with then going to school in Twickenham in London absolutely bizarre and it was hard for me to then connect to these kids because like your concerns are so facile compared to what I've just lived through somewhere mm-hmm. else and I think that disconnection as a kid I could not I couldn't figure out how to um ingratiate myself in any of those communities in any real way so I think what and like that sounds negative but I ended up kind of being raised by television and movies and getting lost in all of that and that's how I ended up who I am yeah that's but a, the piece yeah yeah no I was wondering about that because I read you had grown up being raised by television so that was the reason because you didn't really fit into any of those three places you felt. I just didn't have a I think I didn't have a cohesive narrative mm-hmm. in the real world <laughs> and so television and film really gave me a lot of that I'd also say that my parents were lovely but quite strict and the kind of the idea of go over to a friend's house to play was sort of what <laughs> I don't understand this is not computing for me um so I spent a lot of time watching tv and film and they loved tv and film too um it's not something that we actively spoke about but they were the ones putting on horror movies or science fiction my mum was a huge trekkie so kind of I was really inheriting a lot of that from them as well um but I think one of the things that that movement and living in that way kind of gave to me was um I became an observer very early I became an observer of 
how other people lived in the world, how they, how then I, I was also observing myself of, oh, why can't I figure out how to move in these different spaces? And I was an observer of my parents in these different environments too, um, very quickly. So some might call it dissociation. I call it becoming very observant very early. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, you, you study economics at, at university, but um, at some point you went on to become a stand-up comedian. How did you make that switch? Um, very painfully. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think um, I think I was always trying to prove something to someone um, in terms of academic achievement. I was always, I got pretty good grades and it was always a given in terms of my family environment that you're going to go to university and then succeed and get a safe job and we're all going to live happily ever after and you're not going to have to worry about money the way that we had to. Um, and that was really clear to me. And as I went on, I felt like I was proving everything that I wanted to prove. And I, sure, great, I've done this and I'm really proud of it. And I'm so lucky to be in this situation. But I just had this feeling of just discomfort of, I don't feel happy. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know that I've 100% got it right now, but I just don't feel happy in what I'm spending my days doing. But that desire of being able to tell stories and share stories with people um, was always there. I never went away from when I was a kid all the way up to studying. I mean, studying is a very generous term for what I did at university. Um, studying economics and then going on to, I was working at The Economist very briefly mm. and then all kinds of other jobs. And I just could not imagine doing this for the rest of my life. And I remember there was one point I was working on a team that was, there's, there are these indices in the back of The Economist magazine. And it used to be a two-page strip spread of indices of the markets. And I was part of the team that was calculating new formulating new formulas for how this is going to get calculated and I remember the team the editorial team once said Bish you're doing a really great job in a few years I could imagine you working on my team and I just thought oh god no please no (laughs) um and that was really genuinely a turning point I remember I I have like a even just describing I have like a visceral sense memory of that moment Mm. um I think like I can't do this this can't be what happens for me and so i just decided I'm going to go for it. I'm going to try and tell stories in my own way. And stand-up was really my, my, my kind of door into that. You know, there's a, there's a point in your show where Kamala reveals to her parents that she has superpowers. And you just you said that your parents were, were pretty strict and wanted you to have like a solid, regular day job. Was there a point where you had to reveal to them that you were actually a stand-up comedian? Oh my gosh, yes, there was. Let's not relive it. Um, <laughs> I think um, my parents were really supportive of me being a storyteller in some capacity. Um, they love the idea of me being a writer, especially. Um, I think the idea of stand-up to them was a world of um, bars and mm-hmm. clubs and spaces that you don't actually see very many, especially at that time, any women in, let alone women who look like me and who are my my age. I was quite young when I started in relative terms. Um, So the world is really, uh, looks unsafe to them. And they're not wrong, (laughs) having then done it for eight years. They're not completely wrong in their fears. Um, And I think you can say that for a lot of the comedy scenes, full stop. Um, So... It was. I think it was hard for them to understand, A, the desire, mm-hmm. why on earth would you want to do this, and B, in terms of the strictness, it was so far removed from their experience of me, from what I kind of was able to share with them growing up, of who I, parts of who I am. So um, I think that was really difficult for um, my dad especially to kind of be like, what is? what are we talking about here? Um, but certainly it was 
the idea of me telling stories and being a writer was very, very, they they were really behind that. They've always been behind that in some capacity. But again, they don't have the exposure to, whether it's in media and in publishing or TV or film, they don't really know, and neither did I. Well, how do you even get into any of this? What does that even look like that your job is to write? write? What does that look like? How is that going to support you? Um, So I think that was a really that was really hard for them because of, I think that was driven by kind of love and from fear of the unknown. Um, but they've come around now. They're all right. Well, Bishop Kaley, thanks so much for being on Fresh Air. It's been my absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Bishop Kaley is the head writer of the Disney Plus series, Ms. Marvel. The miniseries concluded last week, but all the episodes are streaming. Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has spent time this summer stuck at crowded airports and in airplanes, putting up with the now typical delays. Coming up, she'll talk about figuring out what kind of books stood a chance of holding her attention. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor, the John Templeton Foundation, who believes in advancing humanity's understanding of the profound questions in life. Funding research and catalyzing conversations that inspire people with awe and wonder since 1987. The John Templeton Foundation is proud to support leading scientists, philosophers, and theologians from around the world. Learn about the latest discoveries related to black holes, complexity, forgiveness, and free will at templeton.org. By now, we've all heard the stories about what an ordeal air travel is this summer. Soaring ticket prices, overbooked and canceled flights— Our book critic, Maureen Corrigan, has been on some of those flights, and she has a reflection on the literary genre known as airplane books. I'm masked and buckled up, this time round, in a middle seat. Surely the only creature more miserable than me right now is a nearby support dog, a pit bull, who's dutifully wedged himself under his human seat. At least this flight is taking off, unlike my earlier one that was abruptly canceled. After two pandemic years of mostly staying in place, I'm flying a lot this summer, sometimes for work, sometimes to visit family and friends. The flights, all full, have been cross-country tests of endurance, bereft of space and food, But being vacuum-packed into an airborne, possible COVID container doesn't do much for the appetite anyway. We all get through the ordeal in our own ways. I've noticed that my fellow passengers are usually glued to dystopian apocalyptic disaster movies where human beings battle against aliens or robots. Who am I to judge? By now, I've faced up to the fact that all I want to read when I'm buckled into a cramped space is a suspense story. What some people dismiss as airplane books, I think of as oxygen masks for the spirit. On my first cross-country flight in May, I carried a couple of literary novels. The flight took off, I started reading, and neither book lived up to its promise Because I just don't like to read on screens, I was trapped and miserable for five-plus hours. But something wonderful happened when I reached my destination in California. I walked into the local library to find a restroom, and near the checkout desk was a wall of used books for sale. For 50 cents to a dollar, I scooped up suspense novels by the holy trinity of Lisa Scottolini, Daniel Silva, and Michael Connolly. Some I'd read but had semi-forgotten. Others were new to me. 
I was transported literally and figuratively on the flight home. Recently, in Oregon, I found similar deliverance in a strip mall used bookstore that was filled with historical and domestic suspense by lesser-known writers like Lauren Belfer, Jeffrey Household, and Celia Fremlin. I lose myself in these kinds of novels for all the obvious reasons, but given the extra tense, extra claustrophobic current conditions of flying, maybe there's an added lure to reading suspense stories where the protagonists typically find themselves jammed into tight spots. Take Connolly's 1998 standalone thriller, Blood work, where a retired FBI agent is marooned in a marina on his late father's broken-down fishing boat. Set up by a serial killer, the agent must mostly sit still and brainstorm how to outmaneuver his opponent. Or there's Jeffrey Household's 1939 novel, Rogue Male, where a failed Hitler assassin conceals himself from his pursuers in a burrow, some two feet in diameter that he's dug out of a hillside. Maybe, like my fellow passengers with their apocalyptic disaster movies, I find solace in adventure stories that mirror and intensify my own immobile misery in the air. The view is different, however, from the cockpit. That's what Mark Van Honecker tells us in his new book called Imagine a City, part memoir, part travelogue, part history, all entrancing. Van Honecker is a commercial pilot and writer whose previous book, Skyfaring, was a bestseller. In Imagine a City, Van Honecker describes his temporary encounters with many of the world's cities, Brasilia, L.A., Delhi, interspersed with touchdowns in Pittsfield, Massachusetts, where he grew up and came to terms with his identity as a gay man. Van Honecker's voice is so contemplative, it holds the disparate parts of this odd book together. Here, for instance, he talks about the singular experience that long-haul pilots and crews have of cities. After we land, we have the opportunity to repeat or deepen a set of urban experiences that are like those of no one else. Our stays in cities, in so many cities, are typically short but frequent, carefully arranged around our legal responsibility to rest, but also freedom-giving and time-bending. I couldn't have read Imagine a City on any of my recent flights. I would have been too resentful. But on ground, Van Honecker's generous view is a reminder of just how extraordinary the whole mess of air travel still really is. Maureen Corrigan is a professor of literature at Georgetown University. Coming up, we remember sculptor Klaus Oldenburg, known for his monumental public sculptures, not monuments of presidents and famous generals, but giant sculptures of everyday objects like a clothespin or baseball bat. He died yesterday. We'll listen back to our 1992 interview. This is Fresh Air. The artist Klaus Oldenburg once said, I am for art that embroils itself in everyday crap and still comes out on top. Oldenburg died yesterday. He was 93. 
He and his wife and partner, Kosha van Bruggen, designed a series of what they called colossal monuments, large public sculptures in the shapes of everyday objects. Chicago has an Oldenburg baseball bat, Miami a fruit bowl, Cleveland has a giant stamp, and Las Vegas a flashlight. Philadelphia, where we produce our show, has a 45-foot-high clothespin that's across the street from City Hall. It's easily my favorite public sculpture in the city. When I pass by, I feel as if it's winking at me, acknowledging that life and art are sometimes absurd. Oldenburg's monuments have been controversial, but as art critic Robert Hughes once wrote, no living artist combines the roles of magician and clown with as much skill as Oldenburg. Oldenburg was born in Sweden but grew up in Chicago. I spoke with him in 1992. Although you've been doing these um, sculptures for years, they've never ceased becoming controversial. Why do you think people get upset when an ordinary object is um, used as the subject of art? Well, I don't know if that's uh, what upsets people. But, of course, the tradition in public sculpture is to create something uh, uh, hierarchical which is up on a pedestal, and um, people are... um, uh, perhaps surprised when that tradition is turned on its head and you get instead a, a a very simple object that most people probably don't feel belongs on a pedestal. But um, in modern times, it seems that uh, such an object is, is more appropriate than, uh, say, an equestrian statue. But people get angry for many reasons, and uh, very often a public sculpture because it gets a lot of attention, is used by people to promote their own causes. And politicians will, will use it to make a case of some sort, uh, which will call attention to themselves. I think it's very good that, uh, that people do discuss and uh, raise controversies over, over sculptures. Kosha and I feel that it would, uh, wouldn't be right somehow to put up something that everybody would agree on, that uh, we have a responsibility as artists to practice the same... Uh, approach that we do in private, which is to say to create something that that has a bit of an edge that lies a little bit ahead of of general consciousness, or try to do that. So when that's transferred into public art, it does make people sometimes surprised, though they they do get used to it. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in the the roots of how you started doing these oversized, now colossal sculptures of of ordinary objects. You started doing this kind of work in in much smaller versions, I believe it was in the early 1960s. Um, What was on your mind then that led you in that direction? Well, the first uh, large-scale work was in 1969, which was the uh, lipstick for Yale University. Uh, uh, Before that, I'd been doing um, uh, fantastic drawings uh, of real sites, um, such as the uh, clothespin I mentioned, where um, uh, they were called proposed colossal monuments. Another one was um, the uh, uh, Good Humor Bar to subst- as a substitute for the Pan Am building on Park <laughs> Avenue. And there were um, many situations like that that were proposed uh, where the existing building had something in common with something much smaller, like a, a Pan Am definitely has the shape of a, of a Good Humor Bar, and the substitution was made in the, in the media of drawing and as convincingly as possible. But in 69, these drawings were well known to the students of architecture at um, Yale University. And uh, when Herbert Marcuse, the socialist philosopher, came to lecture, they purposely asked him what would happen to society if uh, some of these structures were built. 
And Marcuse replied that if that uh, happened, then capitalist society would be at an end. <laughs> so this stimulated the students to commission a sculpture on a large scale, a real version of these fantastic proposals. And so uh, I got the commission to do a sculpture for the center of Yale University. And this was, of course, all done surreptitiously, and the authorities weren't asked. So the sculpture was prepared in secret and brought into Beinecke Plaza, which is the war memorial at the center of the, of the university. And this was in the late 60s, and the, the mood, of course, was very uh, combative, and uh, the students were very involved. And it was a very exciting moment, and the authorities sort of decided to let it happen because they thought if they stepped in and prevented it, much worse things could occur. So the sculpture did get put up, and that was the large, the first large-scale project. What is it about ordinary objects that you take such pleasure in? Well, uh, I've always been very interested in deriving my art from my surroundings, from my daily experiences. So my daily experiences are, are not... Uh, very adventurous or dramatic. They tend to revolve around very simple things, just as uh, most people's. There came a moment when uh, I saw these things as potential sculptures, uh, razor blades, uh, toothbrushes, uh, soaps, whatever. I thought they have a certain character and identity and formal quality in themselves, which could be used as sculpture. And, and this was uh, something which... Uh, which just came naturally. It also is important to me that, that uh, I can touch all these things in a small scale and I can feel the object completely, say, in a small scale before I proceed to making a large version of it. So it has, uh, it has very personal origins, uh, which later became uh, involved with uh, the um, general practices of, of pop art and so on. But, but uh, this interest in smaller objects had, had a personal origin. My interview with artist Klaus Oldenburg was recorded in 1992. He died yesterday at the age of 93. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about a military surgeon who spent World War I reconstructing the faces of soldiers and sailors who'd suffered horrific facial injuries at a time when plastic surgery was in its infancy. Our guest will be Lindsay Fitzharris, who chronicles the work of Dr. Harold Gillies in her new book, The Facemaker. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham, with additional engineering today from Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, Susan Yakundi, and Joel Wolfram. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberta Shorak directs the show. And we all want to thank Joel Wolfram for doing such excellent work on our show these past few months. It's always a pleasure to work with him. I'm Terry Gross.